Advent. Advent meaning awaiting the coming. And I'm going to have us just pass out these blue babbles now as I give us a little window into what Advent might feel like. So I'll give you a little story. On Friday, um, my plan was to go furniture shopping and the Crate and Barrel outlet. Um, have, has anyone been to the Crate and Barrel outlet yet? I've been with Lucy already. Guys, it's in Seal Beach. It's new. It's amazing. But I was going with my friend Liv. Some of you know Liv Doyle. And my plan was I had told her, hey, I'll pick you up at 1045 and we'll go to the Crate and Barrel outlet. But little did Liv know, um, she got the times mixed up. She thought I said 945. And so she was waiting in her living room, waiting to be picked up. And it was like 940. She was like, I'm going to be here early just in case she knocks on the door. She waits, 945 hits. And she's retelling me that she sat there and she was like, all right, 950 hit. And then she's kind of getting a little anxious. She's like, oh, I wonder where Phoebe is. I wonder what happened. 955, I'm 10 minutes late, which... I take pride in not being a super late person, and so she's kind of like, oh no, I wonder what's going on. She starts to even doubt, like, am I even coming? And then she finally thinks around 10 o'clock, 15 minutes late, she's like, I'm just going to like, check my phone to make sure I got the time right. She checks her phone, and it's 10.45, actually, that I'm coming. But there's that moment, if you've ever been waiting for someone to pick you up from your house, maybe it's been a leader. I remember this in high school, when my leaders, in middle school, when my leaders were coming to pick me up from my house, there'd be this kind of like anxious waiting. Like, you know that they told you they're going to come at 6 p.m. or whatever, and you're kind of like waiting in your living room or in your room, and you're like, this is awkward. I don't even know how they're going to come. Are they going to just text me that they're here? Are they going to knock on my door? Are my parents going to interact with them? You're like, I don't even know how this is going to happen. And this anxiety kind of starts to linger in your, in your chest. And you're like, Ugh, I wonder how this is all going to happen. And if they're late or if they're longer than you anticipated, there's this feeling of like, are they even coming? Are they coming at all? And in this season called Advent that we have five weeks leading up to Christmas, which like the global church, the worldwide church, calls this season Advent, which means awaiting the coming king, the coming Messiah, there is this practice that the Advent was like a real thing back in the olden days. A king would tell a town, word would get to a town far, far away before they're like telephones or even letters all that much, word would get to a town that a king would be coming to visit their town. And so this town would begin Advent, where they would get, begin to prepare for the coming king to come and visit their town. This king that they've probably grown up hearing about, but never met, never seen a picture of, have no idea what to expect. They would, come, they would wait, and they would wait expectantly. But as you can imagine, they wouldn't know exactly when the king would come. So maybe this anxiety arises, this uncertainty this excitement or maybe even this fear of like, when is he coming? And, in, and Advent is that season of waiting for the coming king. And Israel, Israel was in this Advent season of waiting for the Messiah to be born, okay? And so the Messiah was born on, like Christmas is what we celebrate as when Jesus was born, the Messiah comes to this earth. And that is their season of Advent. And what we do here in this season, is we remember back to that Advent, the waiting for the Messiah, because we are expectantly awaiting the second coming of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is going to come back to this earth, and he is going to conquer death and evil and Satan for good. We are in this season's between Jesus' coming. Jesus has already come. He's already died on the cross. He's done that work. 
the power and the punishment of sin is gone. The punishment of sin has been taken. That's death. And the power of sin has been taken. Sin does not have power over us anymore. But the presence of sin is still here. And so we are awaiting Jesus' second coming when he will take away even the presence of sin. And so during this second advent, when we are awaiting the second coming of Jesus, what we do is we rehearse or we remember that first advent. We look back to the history of Israel leading up to the birth of Christ, and we look back and we rehearse, we remember, we retell the stories of what it was like for people waiting expectantly, maybe anxiously, maybe with doubt. We look back to that as fuel and sustenance for the advent that we're in right now. When we're experiencing the presence of sin, we get to look back and look at a people who similarly were experiencing the presence of sin and longing for a Messiah to take away the power and the punishment of sin. And today we are hopefully awaiting, expecting the second coming of Jesus when he will take away the presence of sin entirely. And so we are looking at this Advent and specifically this time around, you don't always do this in this way. We look at Advent in different ways throughout different years, but this way we decided to look at it through the lens of these five women that appear in Jesus's genealogy, which is Jesus's lineage. So say, Ethan, you look at who, what's your dad's name, Ethan? Adam. And what's Adam's dad's name? Van? Van? The Vans? Vans? He's the Vans guy. Uh, no. Do you know what Van's dad's name is? Like your great-grandpa? I know. I, I, it is so hard to go beyond a couple generations up. Maybe some of you are like, I know my dad's 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 name. But can you name their dad's name? What we see here in Matthew 1 is a genealogy of so many names going through Jesus's earthly father, Joseph's dads, 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 all the way back to Abraham. What we see in Matthew's genealogy, it's, it's looking at the men, but there are inter, interspersed in here are five women who are mentioned as the wives of these five different men. And we're taking a closer look at why would God allow these women to be in this genealogy specifically? We have plenty of stories of women throughout the Old Testament. We have so many stories. We have stories about Sarah. We have stories about Hannah. We have stories about Eve. We have so many stories about women in the Old Testament. And yet, God allows for these five specifically to be mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. So we're taking a look at them and considering how are they specifically anticipating the coming Christ? How are they shadows of the coming Christ? And so we are looking at the fourth of five. First we had, does anyone remember? Who was our first woman? Tamar. That is right. Tamar. Next we had, does anyone remember who was the second woman? Rahab. Last week we talked about Ruth. And this week we are talking about Bathsheba. And so we are going to be looking at 2 Samuel. And just so you know, next week we're looking at Mary. So Mary, Mother of God, that's going to be amazing. Tony's going to speak on it. We're looking at 2 Samuel which is right after Ruth. You guys can flip to it, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's right after Ruth, which we were in last week, and uh, right after, is Judges after that? I don't even know the order of the Bible. Judges, then Ruth. Thank you. Then we got 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 
if you've hit like first and second kings, you've gone too far. All right, we're in Second Samuel chapter 11. And I'm specifically going to be looking at sin today. And I'm going to be looking at the power that sin has over David's life. And if you know anything about David, King David, he's the one who's written a lot of the Psalms that we have. He was like a really big like verbal processor. And so all of these Psalms are like what's going on in his head and his heart throughout his time of life. And David is known as a man after, does anyone know, a man after God's own heart. That's right. That's kind of what we hear is his like little title, a man after God's own heart. He's the one who slays Goliath the giant. He, he does a lot of things. He is on opposition to um, King Saul. And so there's a lot of things that he has proven to be very faithful and very honoring and honestly very humble towards God. But in this story, we are going to see the darkest parts of his heart and his life. And as we read it, I hope we are not surprised by his sin, but we realized how deep and how wide sin can go to ruin our lives if we are not adamantly and... um, vehemently against sin on God's side. And so we're going to start in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says this, in the spring of the year, the time came when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now to pause there before we launch in to the details of this story, my first point is that little sins erode the will. Little sins erode the will. You know that word erode. It's when something very slowly starts chipping away. Maybe something's eroding metal. It's rusting over. Or maybe little drops of water are eroding a rock just as it drops down over and over and over again. Little sins, little decisions erode the will, which mean that our will is going from being in pursuit of God, which David's heart was in pursuit of God, but he chose little sins, things that were not of God, things that were straying from God's heart, and it eroded his will, meaning he was kind of like off the mark. It started to actually allow him the the space to more easily choose sin than choose God. David had spent his whole life in pursuit of God in humility. But then we start to see these little decisions that don't seem like a huge deal in the moment. They begin to add up and they begin to erode the will to be sort of bent towards sin. It is more likely now for David to choose sin because he has allowed himself to choose sin in like the little ways over and over. He is more likely to choose sin in really big destructive ways because of his little decisions. And those decisions include things like him deciding, unlike the rest of the kings in the world, 
to stay home when his team went out to battle. Oddly enough, it says in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, there was oddly a, a, a season for war. Like there's a season for football. Like there was just this agreed upon season where they would decide to fight and see who was the strongest and see who was the most dominant. So it was the season for war. And instead of David going with his people, like he had time and time again before, instead of going and leaving leading the charge, he stayed back in his little um, capital city, and he watched from afar, which is not at all the leader that God has called him to be. And so we see him rejecting God's call to be a leader in humility, to be servant-hearted, to go with his people and do the hard thing. And so he stays back, and so he sent his servants instead and they're doing pretty well. They're, they're fighting pretty well, but David remains in Jerusalem. And then this other little sin that feels like, what's the big deal? But in the end, actually adds up over time to be something that erodes his will and leads him into big sin. It says this, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from a roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. It, David should not have been on his roof in that way. He was actually the one going and seeking and searching out and looking. And Bathsheba, on the other hand, which some people might read into this story that she was seductive in this way, there's actually so much research and so many people who have studied passages of Scripture and the, the history of the Bible and biblical times that would say that actually Bathsheba is being so obedient to God in this moment. Later in this passage, we see that what she's up to is she's actually being obedient to the law of purifying, of cleansing after having her period. And so this would be something that women would do once a month, and she was being obedient to what God has called her to. So she's doing what God has asked of her, and here we have David who sees her, seeks her out, and actually is, is tempted. And, and here we see this, like, window of temptation. And I think I read this story, and I'm like, man, why wouldn't God protect her from that, to protect David from that even, to, to actually just, like, guard him from that temptation, but that's not what we are promised as believers. We are not promised that there will be no temptation. We are promised that when there is temptation, that there will be a way out. Meaning that when there is temptation, when we open ourselves to the Lord, he will actually give us the strength to turn away from what is tempting and turn towards him. And so what I mean by sin, little sins eroding the will, it's those moments when you experience temptation where you're like, and in high school, this is the time, this is the perfect time for us to be talking about temptation and sin because for the first time, you're starting to realize that like you have a conscience and you have this compass of like, when I've done certain things, I feel that guilt and shame starting to arise. And I think maybe I have the agency to not, to not choose that anymore. I'd say like when we're younger, especially elementary school students, there's less sin and there's actually more mistakes. Like there's this, this sense of like a child acts out against their parent and it's this, it's this like natural anger instinct and you wouldn't say to the kid, stop being sinful. You actually walk with that kid as they move through the anger. But as you enter into high school, there are these moments where your bursts of anger, people start to look at you and say, Actually, I think that you're responsible for that anger now. 
And you need to learn how to open to God in it and be honest with God in it, but to not destroy the people around you because of that anger. That anger is actually not just a mistake or something that's natural in you, but it's actually something that is, can be very sinful when it's used in the wrong way. And so when we look at how sin, little sins, erode our will, we're looking at where, where there's temptation in your life, wherever there's temptation, the Lord might be giving you an opportunity to turn from that temptation and to turn to him. Can you imagine if your will, instead of being bent towards sin, like sin was the easiest path for you to go on, if in high school you open to God and say, God, I want you instead, and I want to learn what it means to want you instead, and your will is bent towards him, and so it's easier in the long haul to choose him over sin. High school is the time to choose that. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, in ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, meaning any temptation that you're thinking about right now, it is common to humans. Like, you're not alone in experiencing that temptation. You are not alone. You're not crazy. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it which means that when you encounter temptation, there is always an escape with God. Not on your own, not in your own willpower, not as you strengthen up or have the right techniques, but with God as you turn to him, there will be an escape. And so we're actually calling you guys to consider as you face temptation, you're not alone in that. It is not crazy that you're experiencing temptation. But as you face it, would you consider what it might look like instead to take that easy route of temptation and enter into sin, to turn and say, God, I want you and I need you and I need your help. I need your help for escape. So David in this moment, he encounters temptation, seeing a beautiful woman from his, from his roof. He encounters temptation after many little sins led him to this place. And instead of choosing God... He is going to choose sin, and he's not going to take the way of escape. Notice how David doesn't talk to anyone in this experience. He's not bouncing ideas off or asking for help. He's taking it into his own hands. And so here we're going to see in this next little passage how sin should not shock us, but it should grieve us. And so verses 3 through 5 say this, And David sent and inquired about the woman, woman, and and one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Which, by the way, that's so many names that we don't know, but it would have been significant because both of those men, Bathsheba's husband and Bathsheba's dad, were both very close friends of David. And so David would have known these men as his close comrades, people who fought for him in war, that were great warriors, and so he, he would have connected those dots of like, this is not just some random woman. This is actually a friend. And it says this uh, in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh, I say this without, um, what, happen, what happens here is going to come out of my mouth and it'll feel like shards of glass, but 
because this is significant, and I don't use this word lightly, but David in this moment actually rapes Bathsheba. And we know this because Bathsheba, if she would have refused David um, and his sexual advance, she probably would have been killed herself. She had no choice in the matter. She was taken, and he slept with her. He raped her. And so I say that not lightly at all. I do not throw that word around lightly at all. But I say that to communicate how severe the crime and the sin was against Bathsheba in this moment, against her body. This is sexual assault, and this is absolutely mortifying to God. And so what happens here is that sin, although shocking, like shards of glass coming out of my mouth, David, a man after God's own heart, rapes Bathsheba. Like, how do we tell these stories about David as an incredible man? And this is part of his story. Like, this should, this should grieve us. But unfortunately, this shouldn't shock us because sin is so rampant. I think so many of you guys, if you, um, if you go to Valley, Millican, Wilson, all three of those schools have experienced the depths of sin this week with their own degrees of lockdown, which some of you are like, oh my gosh, like that was crazy and heavy and weighty. And others of you are like, that wasn't a big deal at all. The reality is that it shouldn't shock us. We shouldn't be surprised about what happens, but we should be grieved by it. That like someone experienced so much pain on this earth that they were willing to actually threaten others and threaten their lives, even if it feels silly in some ways. This should grieve us. We should be saddened over the depth and the weight of sin that is riddling our world. This should be heavy on our hearts. Sin should not shock us. David's sin, although a man after God's own heart, shouldn't shock us, but it should grieve us. And none of us should ever say, I would never stoop that low. I would never get to that place. Because as we look back on these stories of David, he was an incredible man. And he was humble and after God's own heart. And yet, sin after sin is what he chose, and it led him to this place. None of us are free from the presence of sin. But we do have an escape because Jesus died on the cross, taking over the punishment of sin and taking on the power of sin. So it shouldn't shock us, but it should grieve us. In this next part, um, sin will send us into covering and hiding. We're going to see how David chooses to try and cover and hide his sin. He is going to try and take Bathsheba's husband back from war, and he's going to try to get him to sleep with his wife uh, Bathsheba and um, so that it looks like Bathsheba is pregnant with his son right? Or his, his daughter, I guess it could have been, but his, it ends up being a boy. So with his son, he's going to try and make it look like Bathsheba is pregnant with Uriah's son. And I'm going to skip reading over that part, but it's verses 6 through 13 if you're curious. And basically, he does a couple things to try and make that happen. And the whole time, Uriah is like, no, my comrades are at war. I'm not going to sleep with my wife. Um, I'm going to go back to war. And David's like, dang it, my plan does not work because you are a man who has honor and he was valiant, which is so frustrating to David that this man would be also after God's own heart in this moment, screwing up David's plan to cover and hide his, his sin and shame. 
Some of you might be up to techniques and tactics even in this moment of trying to cover and hide your sin and your shame and your guilt. Are you making excuses even now in your head that it wasn't that bad or it was just that one time or I won't do it again? Is that a a technique of yours to try and cover and hide the sin that is actually eroding your heart? Later in this passage, starting in verse 14, we're going to take a look at how sin will take over our lives. In verse 14, it says this, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who's leading the army, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, and he, that he may be struck down and die. Uh, David puts a hit on Uriah. And he is successful. Later on in verse 23, it says this. I can't find it. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then later it says this in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. Sin will take over our lives. Not only did David rape Bathsheba, but then he murdered her husband. This is deep sin. This is the most egregious of sins to murder someone, and it will change his life forever. And yet, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And in fact, this is the reason, the reason why Jesus had to come to this earth. Advent is the season of expecting and hoping and waiting And in this season, especially like in the Old Testament as we're reading right here, there is sin that is riddling even the best of humans who thought they could keep it all together in their own power. And yet we see that sin is taking over their lives. And there is a need for someone bigger than them. That is why we come to church every week is because we need someone bigger than ourselves to come in and heal our hearts, to fix our stories, to walk with us in our pain. That is the need for Jesus in our lives. And so as we are rehearsing this story and retelling it, we are looking at how deep and weighty sin is in David and Bathsheba's story so that we are expectantly hoping and waiting the coming king who's going to have an answer for all of that sin. The punishment of sin will be taken on the cross. What Jesus does is that he goes to the cross. He takes on the punishment of sin, which is death. That is what we had to pay in order to get right with God. But if we did, we couldn't be in relationship with him because we'd be dead. And so Jesus instead went to the cross, took on the punishment of sin. And then he rose again and ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within those who believe in Jesus so that the power of sin wouldn't take over our lives. And in a way, Bathsheba gives us this glimpse 
into who Jesus will be one day. She is innocent. She is obedient. And she bore the weight of sin on her body. And as a result, new life came forth. That is crazy. And don't you see that parallel? That Jesus, innocent, he bore the weight of sin on his body on the cross. And as a result of that, he was raised to new life so that we could have life eternal. There's this answer to all four of these points here in Jesus. And I'll have us hit that slide with all four. Yeah, just go for them all. Sorry about that. The first one, that little sins erode the will. Jesus heals our heart. Sin should not shock us, but it should grieve us. But Jesus should shock us. The fact that he came down and he frees us. Sin will send us into covering and hiding, but Jesus will bring us out of covering and hiding. And finally, sin will take over our lives while Jesus has invited us into his death for eternal life. We wait and hope for the day that the presence of sin will be gone forever. That's our advent. Our advent is waiting for the day when the presence of sin will be gone forever. And we wait expectantly, and we wait with hope because we know that he came 2,000 years ago, and he was true to his word. He did take the punishment of sin, and he did take the power of sin. And so we know with assurance that when we wait and hope for his second coming, he will come. There's no doubt although we're allowed to experience it in his presence, but there is no doubt that he will come and he will take the presence of sin away so that we can be in relationship with him for eternity. I'm going to invite Nikki up here to end us with one song of worship, and I'm going to pray for us. If you guys would stand with me as I pray for you. God, thank you with that you have borne the weight of our sin on your body. And that because of that, you actually had reason to defeat sin and death itself and raise to new life. That there was resurrection life in your body as you were on the cross. And because of that, you have invited us into relationship with you for all of eternity, making a way for us to be in relationship through your son and his sacrifice. God, we know that there is pain in this room of people who relate with David and people who relate with Bathsheba, those who have acted in sin and hurt others and those who have been hurt who has been the victim of someone else's sin. And God, I just ask that you would draw near to both, that you would make a way for both of them to experience your comfort, your forgiveness, your love, your, your res- restoration, your justice even, and your mercy. God, thank you that you dwell with us, that you are not a God who is far off watching, but you are actually with us and have experienced temptation. You've experienced uh, this world, and there's no temptation that is foreign to you. And so we can turn to you in the midst of it and ask for help in the midst of it. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.